Thank you very much for your invitation and welcome. It's very good to be back here. Not sure when I was last year, but it must be at least seven years ago because it was under the ministry of your previous dean. But it's always a treat. And thank you, too, for the invitation to squeeze in to this amazing conference that's been going on for the last three days. And I'm delighted to play a little part within that. As we heard from St. Paul's letter to Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Or since Paul, unlike some of us, never used ten words if six would do instead, what he actually wrote was, if anyone in Messiah, new creation. What does that mean? It's not just as generations have taken it, a statement about personal transformation, though it, of course, is that as well. That's part of the point. If we look around in the chapters to either side of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we find some clues. Because Paul talks about the tent or the tabernacle where we presently live and the new tent or the new tabernacle, the new body which we will have at the resurrection. And when we look through the Jewish traditions, like many ancient traditions about holy places, about temples or tabernacles for the divine, we find that richly in the stream of Jewish thought to which St. Paul fell heir, the temple or tabernacle is a small working model of new creation. The holy place is not an escape from the world, it is the sign of what God intends to do in and for the world. And renewed humans are supposed to be like that too. If anyone is in the Messiah, new creation, we are supposed to be foretastes, advance signs of the new world which God is creating, which God has made in Jesus on that extraordinary morning when he rose from the dead the world which he will make when he returns to unite all things in heaven and on earth in himself, as Paul again says in Ephesians 1. And the vocation of all followers of Jesus in a thousand different ways is to be both new creations ourselves, a dangerous thing in a world which is still full of corruption and decay, but also the agents of new creation in God's world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, we are God's, well, it's a difficult word to translate. People say we are God's workmanship. Well, okay, but the Greek word is poema, the word from which we straightforwardly get poem. Well, we are God's poem. And maybe some of us are sonnets and some of us are epics and some of us are limericks and some of us are haikus. But God is writing poetry in and through our lives. And you write poetry not just to get something off your chest, but in order to share with the world the glimpse, the fresh, bright glimpse of reality which has been vouchsafed to you. This conference that many of you have been taking part in has been a celebration of exactly that, both literally in that there are poets here in our midst who've been reading their works, and one of them we've just heard, but all that we've been doing has been about new creation, 
And it's grounded in that central gospel event of Jesus' death and resurrection. You'll see on your sheet that the official title of my sermon is The Shock of New Life. You know how it is if you're invited to some great gathering and about three weeks in advance, somebody sends you an email saying, um, we're going to have a big dinner on the second night and I want you to choose now whether you want the beef or the fish or the chicken or whatever. And I think, excuse me, I have no idea what I want to eat this evening, let alone three weeks hence. It's the same with sermons that you think weeks in advance, okay, you need to print the bulletin. So I gave it this title, The Shock of New Life, and that is still the meaning of this sermon. But my overall title now, having changed from the beef to the salmon or whatever, is, is The Surprising Faithfulness of God. The Surprising Faithfulness of God. Our Western culture has lurched to and fro. We have faced a choice again and again between either boring continuity, and we all feel there's something wrong with that, or trivial novelty. And we know in our bones that's not where it's at. And the constant challenge in the arts is to avoid mere novelty, but also to avoid mere repetition, which would just be pastiche. As Eliot said, we're trying often, we find ourselves struggling to find words for the thing we no longer want to say. And in theology, there's a constant debate. Actually, it's constant in America. I'm not sure it's going on anywhere else right now, but it's pretty buzzy here, between whether God's purposes work through a steady state development or through a sudden splash which says, forget everything that went before, we've got something totally new. That's actually a cultural phenomenon played out on the grounds of theology. And what we find instead in John 20, in 2 Corinthians 5, is the surprising faithfulness of God, with the idea of the surprise and the idea of the faithfulness resonating with and against and, and in company with one another as musical images resonate with one another. I had a research assistant who tried to sum this up a few years ago, and he said, God in the gospel has acted shockingly, startlingly, radically, as he always said he would. In other words, God had told them all along. As John says, they didn't yet know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They're putting it together. Something radically new has happened, but it turns out to be the surprising faithfulness of God, the shock of new life which is also the ultimate radical affirmation of the original creation. So in John 20, we hear the sound of running feet. People don't often run in the Gospels. The prodigal son's father runs to meet him, but that's unusual. People in that culture usually didn't run. It was undignified. But here is Mary coming to the tomb to weep, and she runs, and she tells Peter and the beloved disciple, we'll call him John for the sake of argument, and something is going on here. You don't run just for the sake of fun in the ancient world. You don't run when there's a mere new development in a story you already know. You run because something surprising and shocking has happened, totally uh, un unexpected and unprecedented. If they had understood the scriptures, they might have run even faster. And they see Peter and John, the linen cloths. And John just tells the story and leaves it hanging there. This is asking a question, what on earth, and I mean on earth, is going on with these linen cloths? Why are they separated like that? 
What does it mean? One of the things which in that culture it means is it can't just have been grave robbery because grave robbers don't carefully unwind the cloth of the body and separate it out like that. Something totally new has happened. But then they go back to their homes. It'd be nice to think they went off to do a bit of Bible study to find out what it all meant, but I suspect that that came later. <laughs> and they leave Mary at the tomb in verses 11 to 18. There's something here rather like in John 3, you have Nicodemus, the great teacher, and Jesus engages with him, and we're not told that he gets it yet. He seems to have done by the end of the story, but he's still puzzled. And then in John 4, we have the woman of Samaria, who has far more apparent problems than Nicodemus, but she gets it. There's something of the same dynamic here. Here are these two men running to and fro and going back home again, and then Mary waits and weeps, and she sees the angel. Why haven't they seen the angels? Maybe you only get to say, see angels through tears. And she sees that the angels are poised there, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus' body had been. Now, throughout John's Gospel, as many of you will know, Jesus is the true temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. The Greek word means pitched his tent. John is tracking with the great temple theme of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in case we missed the point, he has Jesus talk about himself in relation to Jacob's ladder set up between heaven and earth. And then in chapter 2, when Jesus is actually in the Jerusalem temple, John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And throughout the gospel, that theme is one of the leitmotifs running through. Until now at the end, what is the central item of the temple furniture? The central item of the temple furniture is the mercy seat with an angel at either end because that is where the living God has covenanted to meet with his people and to meet with them in grace. And Mary sees a new mercy seat because Jesus himself in his death and burial has been in person that to which the temple and its furniture were merely advance signposts. He is the place where and the means by which the surprising faithfulness of God has been enacted and is now to be seen. This is the place where it happened. And so Mary Magdalene, still weeping, no doubt she wasn't aware of all of this which John is drawing out, she supposes Jesus to be the gardener when she sees somebody standing behind him. And as many commentators have said, that was the right mistake to make. Jesus is the truly human one. This is the moment of new creation. And he is now the one commissioned by his father to be the agent of that new creation. He himself is the nucleus of new creation and the cause by which new creation is going to happen in the whole world. New creation is launched in Jesus himself and the new world which he opens up. So she addresses him as though he's simply some character in the, in the gardening system. And what have you done with him? Have you taken him away? Please show me where. And he says her name. And there's something very odd happens here in the Greek text. Because the name Mary regularly comes out in its Greek form, Maria. It's probably the name by which Mary Magdalene was known on the street 
in Magdala or in Jerusalem or else a Maria. It's basically the pagan version of the name. But in many manuscripts at this point, it's the Aramaic name, Mariam, Miriam. That's Jesus' mother's name. That's the name Mary Magdalene's dad used to call her when she was a kid. It is, if you like, her real name, the name which says, I have known you and loved you, and now there is a new life, which is not just a return to the old life, but is a surprising fulfillment. It is a new name which is yet an old name. It is retrieving everything that was good about the past in a new creation, restored, resurrected. Mary herself comes to embody the surprising faithfulness of God because if anyone is in the Messiah, new creation, she is a new example of that, of the superb, extraordinary, shocking faithfulness of God, faithful to his covenant, faithful to his creation in ways that nobody had seen coming. And when we stand back, we see that John has told us this already because the opening words of the chapter are on the first day of the week. John has sketched a week. He's told us at the beginning of the gospel, this is a new Genesis. And so here are the seven days. And on the sixth day, the Friday, Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and Pilate says, Eke homo, behold the man. This is the day when humans are created. Jesus is the real human. And then after his death on the seventh day, God rests in the darkness of the tomb. And then, on the first day of the week, very early, Mary comes to the tomb and the story unfolds. This is the beginning of new creation. When I was Bishop of Durham, I used to set uh, a sort of a little quiz when I was interviewing people for parish appointments. In England, we have a radio program called Desert Island Discs, where celebrities go and choose their favorite records, and towards the end, they have to choose a book that they would take to a desert island, and the, the person says, uh, but you've already got the Bible and Shakespeare. Let's make it more interesting. And so... So I often used to say to clergy when interviewing them for parishes, um, okay, if you have one chapter from the New Testament to take with you to your desert island, what's it going to be? Oh, and you've already got Romans 8 and John 20. Because <laughs> these, these are the two great chapters of new creation which we should be living in and living off all our lives. So this is the beginning of the new thing when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter morning. And our culture has been resistant to that because we've been told for the last 250 years that we were the new thing, that the Enlightenment was the new thing, that our new political systems, our new science, our new technology, this had transformed the world. And anything else that went before was just a foretaste of this real, real newness. We have co-opted the idea of newness and have pushed the message of Christianity down to be subservient, which is why people in our culture find it extra hard to believe in the resurrection. As a result, we have produced a culture whose symbols are mere novelty. The new smartphone, the new car, whatever it is, the flotsam and jetsam of the over-optimism of the Enlightenment. And against that, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul explains his apostolic ministry. 
this strange way he goes about behaving. See it in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6 where he's persecuted and shipwrecked and, and slandered and beaten up and goodness knows what. And he says, what's going on in all of this is that the surprising faithfulness of God is hereby being embodied. I know that's not what your translation says of verse 21, but there are ways of convincing you, but not today perhaps, um, that what he is actually saying there is, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might embody, might become the saving, surprising faithfulness of God. That was what Paul was doing and being, not only new creation himself, but the means by which new creation was happening elsewhere. And now we see it happening to Mary Magdalene. She is both new herself and the means of newness in others. And of course this is hard to believe in our culture because the modern world says we started the project and now we just have to keep it going. And postmodernism says a plague on all your projects. And the church is often caught in between those two. But John 20 is all about the rescue and renewal of creation itself, the truth of which the modernist dream is a mere parody. You know what a parody is when you get a wonderful line of poetry and then uh, somebody does a, a cheap version of it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Or um, all, all the stuff in the same play in Hamlet about the horrors of this life. And you imagine somebody doing a twinkle, twinkle, little star version and saying, shall I kill myself or not? Life is such a load of rot. You know, that's a, that's a, par <laughs> that's a parody of those wonderful speeches from Hamlet. Now, the modernist rhetoric of the Enlightenment is a parody of the Christian gospel. It's borrowed it and trivialized it. And my friends, we are here to celebrate the surprising, true faithfulness of God. And in an earlier age, the voice of the artist or the musician or the, the, the dancer or whoever would be more obviously integrated with the culture than has been in modernity. In the medieval period, there was an easy commerce of the old and the new of a world of symbol and symbolic action where the interconnections were grasped intuitively and worked out intellectually. We've lost that in Western modernity, in our long rebellion against what was perceived as stultifying medievalism. And there are some who want us to go back in a way to some of the medieval period to forget modernity by going back. No, we forget modernity or we get its best emphases, but then we move on into God's new world. We explore in fresh ways the surprising faithfulness of God. We hear the thesis of those sociologists and philosophers like Charles Taylor, who tell us that for the first time in human history, there is a world in which God seems to be absent and people can apparently organize their lives like that. In that world, music becomes mere decoration. Art becomes mere fantasy around the edge leaving us then with the false antithesis of rationalism, where it all translates out into propositions, or romanticism, where it all simply means, I have this nice feeling, which leads to the brutalism and the keech which have defaced our artistic world, either rejecting the emotions or wallowing in them. And the large follies of contemporary Western politics map onto that and reflect it. Let the reader understand. But art, real art, is about new creation. 
And the emphasis there is on the surprising faithfulness of God, God doing the new thing which nevertheless makes utter sense of the old. A healing sense, a restorative sense, a regenerative sense, which is necessary at every level, from the political to the personal. If anyone is in Messiah, new creation. So that the vocation of the musician, whether you're playing the triangle or the timpani, the, musician, the, the vocation of the poet, whether you're writing an epic or a limerick, the vocation of the painter, whether you're doing a little miniature or a huge sprawling masterpiece, is to surprise us with a fresh glimpse of a truth, an integration, a reality, which by saying something new makes fresh sense of the world of creation, which we know only too well because for that world, it must be healing and redemptive sense. Mary's tears sum up the long night of weeping of the daughters of Israel, the daughters of Eve. And this too is to be expressed in art and music, not as brutalist denial, nor as emotional wallowing, but as with the Psalms, the God-given gift of lament Mary, through those tears, expresses the lament of the world, and God, through our tears, expresses his own lament at the way things are. So that the vocation of the arts is to sum up the tears of Mary, the insight not yet fully understood that Jesus really is the gardener, the renaming of Mary with her true name, called to the truth of who she really is, and the commissioning then of Mary to go and tell. And here, of course, is one of the wonderful things about this story. Jesus could have called any one of his disciples to be the first to tell the news. The vocation is neither to sink back into the present creation the way it is, or to reject it entirely and say we've got to have something totally novel. No. Mary embodies the fact that God is making a fresh start and doing stuff differently. And the foundation of all Christian ministry is the announcement to the world that the crucified Jesus is raised and ascended and is now the world's true Lord. And who does Jesus entrust that commission to from day one? The answer is Mary. She is there to embody and to express the saving faithfulness of God, thereby opening people's eyes to the shock of new creation. The new creation which says yes to the original creation without saying yes to the corruptions to which that original creation has become subject. The new creation which says yes, therefore, in shocking and challenging new ways and which leaves us, all of us, with a vocation at every level of church, of family, of arts, of community. Whether we're singing a song or whether we're helping with a drug rehab program or whether we're writing a doctoral dissertation or bringing up a family or glimpsing a whole new direction. Forwards, we hope, out of the tragicomic disasters of contemporary Western politics or playing in a jazz band or whatever it is, we are to be new creation ourselves and the vehicles and vessels of new creation in God's world. We are to be part of a church which is itself a sign and means of new creation. Pointing like Mary Magdalene 
to the fact that the crucified and risen Jesus is the world's true Lord. That new creation has begun and that we tremblingly, dangerously are called to be part of it. However dangerous that may be, however shocking it may be, personally, politically, culturally. And that with all of this, the surprising faithfulness of God is revealed to the world that needs it so much. If anyone is in the Messiah, new creation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.